Today's episode references events that happened in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. For the full story behind those phenomena, check out our four-part legacy special on Roswell that aired across conspiracy theories and unexplained mysteries. Even in winter, Southern California was sunny. One December day in 1984, filmmaker Jamie Chanderay was at home, reading a magazine and enjoying the quiet, when he heard a thunk at the front door. Chanderay got up and opened the door to find a package lying on the doorstep. It was small and double-wrapped, with no return address or signature. This wasn't out of the ordinary for him. Chanderay had been working on a documentary about aliens, so he was no stranger to weird situations and random occurrences. Sometimes he found evidence in the most unusual places. These surprises were occasionally useful, but none were ever groundbreaking. This piece of mail felt different, though. Chanderay examined the contents inside, perplexed. It was a single roll of film with no message or explanation. Curious about what it could contain, he didn't waste any time. He got his jacket, ran to the car, and dropped the film off to be developed. Of all the possibilities that Chanderay considered that day, he couldn't have begun to guess what was actually on that roll of film and how it would change his life and the lives of countless others forever. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on a mysterious organization called Majestic 12, or MJ-12. It was a top-secret group of a dozen experts who allegedly reported to the Oval Office on matters of paranormal activity. Many believe they held the keys to understanding what really happened during the Roswell, New Mexico incident in 1947. In this episode, we'll cover the strange, years-long investigation that a filmmaker and two experts undertook into MJ-12. We'll look at how they connected evidence together that might prove the coalition's existence and could implicate a former sitting president in an apparent alien expedition. Next time, we'll explore a few conspiracy theories about MJ-12, including the most blatant one debated by skeptics and believers, whether the group is real or made up. Plus, we'll look into the possibility that MJ-12 was part of a larger UFO disinformation campaign on behalf of the filmmakers or even the U.S. government. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On the night of July 3rd, 1947, a thunderstorm raged across New Mexico. At first, the evening itself was unremarkable. Anyone who lives in the desert can tell you how intense summer storms could get in the flattened plains. A little severe weather wasn't enough to stop Jim Ragsdale and his girlfriend, Trudy Truelove, from having a romantic evening, though. That night, the two had set up camp 30 to 40 miles outside of Roswell. But around 11.30 p.m., they heard an earth-shattering boom that rocked their car, which was followed by a bright flash. It was nothing like the lightning strikes the couple had seen before. It seemed to have direction and movement. In fact, they both swore they watched the light literally crash into the ground far off in the distance. Wanting to investigate, they decided to drive towards the area where the brightness had met the horizon. By the time they arrived, though, it was still dark and hard to see much of anything. So they camped overnight in the area. And when the sun rose in the morning, the young couple awoke to the strangest sight they'd ever seen. The dry desert land around them was covered with a strange, flimsy kind of metal. It was collapsible enough that Ragsdale could crush it in his hand, but flexible enough to spring right back into its original shape when he let go. Neither of them had ever touched anything like it, so they followed the material's trail. And eventually, it led them to a large spacecraft-like ship, maybe what had crashed during the storm the night before. The couple was about to explore further, but then they saw something that turned their blood cold. Dead bodies. A few of them badly burned. Each body that lay near the ship was around four or five feet tall. They looked human, and yet there was something about them that was odd. Ragsdale and True Love debated about what to do, but were interrupted by the sound of army trucks. As half a dozen or more pulled up near the ship, the young couple crouched down in the tall grass, out of sight. Dozens of men who looked like government officials jumped out of the trucks and picked up that strange metallic material. With each passing second, Ragsdale and True Love were increasingly certain that they'd stumbled upon something dangerous. So they did the most logical thing they could. 
They ran at the first chance they got. Jim Ragsdale and Trudy Trulove weren't the only civilian witnesses to see the crash site or those army men packing up the strange materials. Before long, people around New Mexico started to talk about it. A lot. Details of the peculiar event at Roswell moved around town like a game of telephone. At first, it seemed like local gossip, the kind of mindless conversation that keeps folks entertained in a small town. As more and more people found similarities in their stories, though, the mystery took on a life of its own. They wanted some kind of explanation. Five days later, on July 8th, government officials explicitly stated during a photo op that the metallic debris might have come from a flying saucer. The local newspaper, the Roswell Daily Record, ran the story on the front page, and all hell broke loose. Amid rising speculation, the U.S. Department of War released another official statement less than 24 hours later. However, this updated explanation was far more mundane and shied away from the extraterrestrial altogether. The government claimed the strange debris actually came from a crashed weather balloon. Plenty of people didn't buy it. For one, witnesses said the men who came to pick up the debris that day looked like high-level intelligence officers. It was difficult to imagine why that type of government official might be needed to do such a so-called routine cleanup. And the whole delivery of this explanation was extremely weird. The U.S. Department of War didn't usually speak directly to the public about domestic matters, let alone a minor weather balloon incident, yet it got involved immediately. Those paying close attention thought the government was acting out of character. Some started to wonder why there was so much secrecy and caution around the events, and if there was something more to the story. These major questions prompted the birth of a burgeoning UFO community. Over the following decades, America's UFO enthusiasts grew very dedicated to exposing the truth about what happened at Roswell. And some members specifically sought to prove that the U.S. government knew more extraterrestrial contact than it was willing to admit. The lore of Roswell continued to be so powerful that about 35 years later, in the early 1980s, two men wanted to make a documentary about what actually happened that day. Noted UFO researcher Bill Moore and documentary producer Jamie Chanderay. In 1982, Moore and Chandere put together the Roswell film pitch. They consulted with other well-known UFO enthusiasts, and their team soon included noted nuclear physicist Stanton Friedman. Friedman was well-known for his persistence, especially when it came to digging for information and his offbeat ideas, skills that were high in demand for a field like this. Chandere, though felt like the odd one out. Unlike Moore, Chandere wasn't particularly interested in UFOs. More likely, he was invested in the documentary pitch because of the genre rather than the topic itself. But then, two years later, on December 11, 1984, a mysterious package came quite literally to his front door. Chandere was home reading a magazine when somebody dropped a mysterious package and disappeared. 
He examined the envelope carefully. It had no return address or signature, but it was postmarked December 8th from Albuquerque, which was a few hundred miles away from his California home. Intrigued, Chandere opened the package and found a roll of 35-millimeter film inside. That was it. No note, no context. As mysterious as it was, Chandere had received conspicuous mail before. After all, he was in the middle of producing a documentary with an extremely well-connected UFO researcher. Tips about aliens came in all different forms. But when Chandere brought the film to Bill Moore, Moore was confused. He told Chandere he had no idea who might have sent the package. Not only was Moore not expecting any materials from sources, he didn't know any academics in Albuquerque. And after working with the UFO community for years, both Chandere and Moore knew it was filled with people who wanted credit for their findings. They couldn't think of anyone they knew who'd put effort into being anonymous. Obviously, their curiosity was piqued. They rushed to get the pictures developed and wondered if this tip could be substantial or a dud. After a few days of waiting, with great anticipation, the film was ready. They picked up the photos, eight in total. But they weren't pictures of Roswell. They were images of text, seemingly from a single government report. Each photograph displayed a different page. It was nothing like any government document either man had seen before. The title page revealed it was a briefing report for President-elect Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1952, five years after the Roswell crash. The report's opening page discussed the formation of a group called the Majestic 12, or NJ-12. According to the pages, President Harry S. Truman had pulled together a secret operation of a dozen scientists, government officials, and researchers. Their main goal was to facilitate the recovery of alien spacecraft. As the men read through the documents, they immediately saw a mention of the 1947 Roswell incident. Strangely, the information in the report aligned with what numerous witnesses claimed they saw in Roswell on the day of the crash. It even referenced eyewitness reports of multiple disc-shaped aircraft flying through the sky in New Mexico. The exact information the government had worked so hard to deny five years earlier. This was a massive scoop, bigger than anything Chandray and Moore could have hoped for. And as they scanned through, they realized something unexpected. The report had no redactions. Most White House documents they came across had lines fully blacked out for security purposes. But this one was clean. Which could mean it was fake, or that someone distributed the documents before officials could blot out essential information. Either way, they knew they had to look through these pages with a fine-tooth comb, and quickly. So in the days that followed, Moore and Chandray went over every single detail in the photos of the documents. It was hard to keep track of how many bombshells were dropped on each page. 
The documents went on to allege that the U.S. government found and recovered an actual flying saucer 75 miles away from Roswell. If this was true, then it corroborated witness accounts that this was not a weather balloon crash. But the next revelation was almost incomprehensible for the men. The documents revealed that the government found four alien bodies, which were ejected two miles from the saucer. Perhaps the same bodies that True Love and Ragsdale saw in 1947. Plus, there were details in this document that were unfamiliar to the men and the UFO community at large. For example, government researchers apparently had found strange, cryptic symbols on the saucer at the crash site. The documents didn't say explicitly that this was an alien language, but implied that it could be. The wildest revelation of all, though, was that Roswell's UFO wasn't even the only one that the U.S. government had found on Earth. Another saucer was allegedly recovered in 1950, three years after Roswell. It wasn't clear what happened to that saucer. Once more and Chandray had gone through every detail in those pages, they knew two things. For one, they thought they might finally have evidence to prove the government coordinated a cover-up at Roswell. And second, they knew they had to get to the bottom of the MJ-12 members list because there had to be some reason President Truman chose these men for such an odd, highly specific job. It was obvious that the 12 members of the secret organization were high flyers, Six civilians at the top of their fields in research and science, along with six government officials from the Air Force, military, and Navy. But there was one person on the list who should never have been involved in such a group. Coming up, the documentary crew makes a discovery that changes everything. They say time heals all wounds. But sometimes, time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In 1984, filmmaker Jamie Chandray and researcher Bill Moore dove deep into every member listed in the MJ-12 document. The majority of the names made sense. These men likely all had high security clearances already, so taking a meeting at the White House with President Truman wouldn't arouse suspicion at all. The MJ-12 roster included Dr. Vannevar Bush, the head of the U.S. Office of Scientific Research and Development during World War II. Dr. Bush was such an influential scientist that he's largely credited for the creation of the National Science Foundation. He also worked closely with President Truman during his tenure. 
Another alleged member of MJ-12 was Sidney Sowers, the first official director of the CIA, who was also close to Truman. And yet, there was one member listed whose involvement made no sense at all. Dr. Donald Menzel, a Harvard astronomer and one of the most outspoken debunkers of UFO conspiracy theories in the world. Moore and Chandray couldn't understand why someone like Menzel would be invited to join MJ-12, let alone serve in the group. They worried that it indicated that these documents were unreliable, or worse, completely fabricated. On the other hand, it could mean they were onto something very unique, and following the trail might lead them towards other major revelations. Moore and Chandray knew there would be quite a bit of legwork to verify the document's claims, so they asked their top UFO contact, Stanton Friedman, for help. Friedman agreed that Menzel's inclusion felt like a red herring, though he wasn't sure what that indicated. Since all the alleged MJ-12 members were dead by that point, it was impossible to answer their question with a simple interview. So instead, Friedman did some digging into Menzel's life. And fortunately, the astronomer left behind more than enough remnants of his work to get them started. Immediately, Friedman found a suspicious letter written to Dr. Bush by a lawyer. The lawyer told Dr. Bush that Menzel still had full clearance in the Air Force, despite an unknown confrontation that had caused him to almost lose it. This was a bizarre document to come across. Remember, Dr. Bush was in this alleged MJ-12 organization too. Friedman couldn't think of a single above-board reason for why a Harvard professor like Menzel might need Air Force clearance to begin with, let alone a reason for him to do anything to potentially get that clearance taken away. So Friedman went to the archives at Harvard to learn more. He searched through boxes and boxes of Menzel's old documents. Most of them were filled with what you might expect from an Ivy League professor, copies of old lectures, certificates, and honorary awards. But Friedman also found something staggering. Amid the towers of correspondence were a series of letters between Menzel and President John F. Kennedy. They revealed that Menzel had been leading a double life. By day, Menzel was a Harvard astronomer, traveling the world and giving lectures about the night sky. He challenged most wild claims from the UFO community. But in his private life, Menzel conducted top-secret work for the National Security Agency, or the NSA. Given this skill set, he also served as a consultant to many private corporations on topics like cryptography, radio wave propagation, and alien spacecraft. Suddenly, Menzel's role in these MJ-12 documents became much clearer. Apparently, he wasn't a UFO non-believer at all. It might have just been his cover while secretly working with the government to prove they exist. Knowing Menzel had also done official work in cryptography was another lightbulb moment for his participation in MJ-12. Perhaps he was recruited to look into the strange, mysterious symbols on the Roswell spacecraft. All of this information made Freeman certain of one thing. 
Menzo was less a UFO skeptic and more likely a strategic mouthpiece for the government. His role might have been part of a coordinated effort to spread disinformation about UFOs. This would certainly help to keep the government's own UFO research away from public scrutiny. For more Chandray and Friedman, the Menzel documents were the sign they'd been searching for. It showed them that the MJ-12 paperwork was worth the additional time and effort needed to prove that the organization was real. Over the next year, the three men worked tirelessly on their mission, looking for any evidence they could find to back up the details within the document. Of course, this research wasn't simple. MJ-12 was an organization that existed underneath the highest possible level of security and secrecy. As a result, the men had to get creative with their verification efforts. With Friedman's relentless prowess guiding the way, the men looked at White House schedules and visitor logs from that time period. They also tracked the public lives of the 12 listed men, searching for moments when these members might have met or been in the same place at the same time. Through this work, the team found a number of small meetings and calls between members, all of which could lend some credibility to the documents. But there was nothing explicitly labeled MJ-12. There was no information significant enough to make them comfortable going public with what they had. They needed something big, something equivalent to the scope of uncovering Menzel's private life, but it had to be clearly connected to the Oval Office. After all, the most damning claim in the document was that Truman knew about UFOs and kept them under wraps. In the spring of 1985, after months of scouring through public records, the researchers received another strange piece of mail. It was a postcard addressed to Moore, sent to his old address in Arizona, then forwarded to his new home in Los Angeles. It was postmarked from New Zealand. And even more bizarre, the unsigned card had a return address that read, Box 189, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. On the back, an extremely cryptic message taunted him. Add some zest to your trip to Washington. Try Reese's Pieces. For a stylish look, try Suitland. To a casual observer, this postcard sounded like a meaningless advertisement. But Moore and Chandere had learned to think carefully about items like these. For ufologists, anything and everything might be a clue. So they tried to solve it. At first, they thought the Reese's reference might have to do with E.T., Steven Spielberg's famous 1980s film about an alien who loves candy. But when they spoke to Friedman about the postcard, he saw something else entirely. He recognized a few details that matched his upcoming trip to Washington, D.C. Friedman was planning to look through some recently declassified military intelligence records in a Maryland suburb called Suitland. And the man he was meeting about those records? His name was none other than Ed Reese. By this point, Moore and Chandray had been analyzing the film roll documents for over half a year. If this postcard's message was really what it seemed to be, this could be the final clue that unraveled everything. 
Wasting no time, they hopped on a plane to D.C. A daunting task awaited them at the Suitland Archives. The boxes they wanted to look through numbered in the hundreds, and each one contained thousands of government papers. The work was exhausting and monotonous. Most of the documents the men went through were so marked up, there were only a handful of words left on the page. But soon, they came across a piece of paper that stopped them in their tracks. It was titled Memorandum for General Twining, written in 1954 by a man named Robert Cutler. At the time, Cutler was the special assistant for national security to Eisenhower. He was responsible for coordinating schedules, sending memos, and other administrative work. Friedman described him as a, quote, paper pusher. Even so, the Cutler papers contained a serious revelation. They detailed an upcoming appointment between the president and a military general to discuss MJ-12. It also noted that this conversation would be wrapped into the schedule with another meeting. In other words, the officials could leave no proof that this MJ-12 conversation ever took place. The memo reminded Friedman of another Cutler-Twining memo from 1953, which provided oddly specific instructions for the general. For example, Cutler stipulated that he leave his car far away from the vicinity of the White House, perhaps so that no one knew he was there. And finally, it concluded by telling the general not to respond to this directive at all. Friedman, Chanderay, and Moore immediately knew how significant their finding was. They felt it was finally the direct evidence they needed, connecting the Oval Office to MJ-12. And as one of them looked back at the box where they'd found the memo, they gasped. The box was labeled number 189, the same return address of the mysterious postcard. While they hadn't been able to see it at first, that cryptic postcard actually contained multiple clues leading them to this discovery. And with that revelation, the men were desperate to know who'd sent the postcard and how this person had known about Cutler's memo in the first place. Coming up, the trio releases the MJ-12 papers to the public. Now back to the story. In 1985, ufologists and documentarians Bill Moore and Jamie Chandray found a highly incriminating memo in the Suitland Archives in Maryland. After reading it, they were hell-bent on figuring out who was behind the mysterious postcard they'd been sent with clues leading them to Box 189. The men believed it had to be someone who worked on the inside of the government. After all... There weren't many people who could have seen this top-secret message from the moment it was written to when it was filed away in Box 189. And many of the people involved, like Cutler, General Twining, and President Harry S. Truman, were now dead. After discovering the memo, the trio felt confident enough to share their findings in niche UFO and alien magazines. Given the implications of the documents, their information quickly made waves. Because, as many in the UFO community realized, if these documents were real, 
this was a once-in-a-lifetime bombshell that could change everything. Soon, the MJ-12 documents were the biggest conspiracy theory in the UFO community. And as a result, efforts to debunk those documents grew as well. Both UFO enthusiasts and skeptics scoured the papers, pinpointing tiny details as proof that they weren't legitimate. They waged arguments over the paper's watermarks and signatures. There was a general consensus on one aspect of the documents, though. Everyone wanted to know who had sent Moore and Chandere those clues and why. People agreed that it had to be someone who had a foot firmly planted in both worlds, the world of the government and the world of ufology. As the months passed, one name in particular rose to the top as a potential suspect, a government man named Richard Doty. Throughout the 1980s, Doty was a bit of a walking contradiction. He was a special agent at the Air Force Office of Special Investigations and also a vocal supporter of UFO conspiracy theories. In fact, Doty had written a report regarding another mysterious event near Roswell, specifically a series of unidentified lights seen in Albuquerque, New Mexico. On top of all of that, Doty had a past connection to Bill Moore. Doty was one of his sources. Moore claimed that back in the early 80s, Doty gave him high-level information on UFOs for his research. Doty's work as a source didn't stop with Moore. Allegedly, he also gave information to a television producer named Linda Moulton Howe in 1984. According to her, he showed her some presidential briefing papers regarding UFOs. He told her he believed it was time that the American public knew what was happening with ufology, that they deserved to know the truth. The papers Doty showed how were apparently more detailed than Moore and Shandera's findings. Particularly, one page claimed there was proof that humans and aliens had actually met in person. Doty promised how he'd give her film footage of the interaction, but for some reason he later changed his mind and never provided anything else. Doty didn't stop communicating with Moore, though. Into the mid-1980s, the men had a mutually beneficial relationship. Doty provided Moore with information on UFO-related informants. In return, Moore shared details about the UFO research community activities, which Doty likely cared about because of his government work. Plus, there was one final detail potentially connecting Doty to the mysterious film package Chandray received. As we mentioned earlier, it was postmarked from Albuquerque, which was where Doty was stationed and working at the time it was mailed. Because of this, many thought Doty probably tipped off Chandray and Moore in the first place. However, there were areas where Doty's involvement didn't entirely add up. After all, the postcard with the box 189 clue that Bill Moore had received was postmarked from New Zealand. That made it virtually impossible for Doty to mail it. Granted, he was in New Mexico at the time. Unfortunately, Doty disappeared from the UFO scene before he could give any clear answers. In 1985, 
After the MJ-12 papers went public, the Air Force transferred Doty to Germany. But his name didn't fade away. While he was abroad, news broke that Doty had faked contact reports and failed a lie detector test. Doty later denied that either of those events took place, but apparently all the attention made him less willing to speak out. By 1988, he refused to address any of the rumors swirling around his reputation. He denied any knowledge of the papers he showed Linda Howe, and also claimed that he'd never even heard of MJ-12. In the end, the question of Doty's involvement was extremely compelling, but unproven. For anyone who cared about MJ-12, especially those working on the documentary, it was a bitter pill to swallow. Without any way of finding who had sent those packages, there was no next step for verifying MJ-12's existence. Suddenly, the years of effort that Moore, Chandray, and Friedman had put into this journey collapsed in on itself like a sinkhole. A once promising escapade to make their documentary felt like a failed mission. Perhaps because of this stalled momentum, the following years saw a quick disintegration of the group that brought MJ-12 into the public eye. For one, Jamie Chandray disappeared from the spotlight. He never ended up making the Roswell documentary. To this day, information on him is limited to his involvement in the MJ-12 documents. As for Bill Moore, he re-emerged a few years later in 1989, where he made a surprising confession during a national UFO conference. He claimed that his MJ-12 findings were actually the work of a double agent. He told the conference he had spread false information on behalf of the Air Force. He also defended his actions, claiming he did so in order to learn more from government officials. Meanwhile... Stanton Friedman took a different route. He stubbornly maintained that the MJ-12 documents were real, so much that he wrote a book called Top Secret Magic, spelled M-A-J-I-C, published in 1996. In it, he mapped out every piece of evidence that was verified beyond the parameters of Doty or Moore's control. This led many to wonder if Doty and Moore were telling the partial truth or if they were pressured to publicly disavow the papers. Friedman firmly stood by his word until he died in 2019. Oddly enough, Richard Doty seemed to change his tune over the years. In the late 1980s, he moved back to the United States to work as an investigator for New Mexico's Department of Public Safety. And in a later interview with author Phil Patton, Doty claimed he was sworn to secrecy and couldn't address questions about MJ-12. While he didn't explicitly say it was by the government, he seemed to imply it. However, Doty also made several controversial comments during the phone conversation. Patton suggested Doty might be bothered by his association with these events. In response, Doty said, quote, I don't worry about it. People can think what they want to think. The truth is known by those that matter. Doty went on to claim that the FBI had actually investigated the MJ-12 papers. He said the FBI viewed the documents as a 50-50 toss-up. 
meaning even the government agency couldn't decide whether they were real or fake. Then, Dodie confirmed another piece of information that made his role in this story even stranger. He said the Air Force supposedly ran deception programs to use UFO speculation to divert attention away from other military events. He told Patton, quote, it's called legitimate lying. Doty's interview with Patton summarized the difficulty of understanding the Majestic 12 story and the debate that's been raging over it ever since. Believers and cynics alike use arguments that are hard to keep track of and highly subjective. The many hypotheses that would explain it involve double and triple agents in the government and UFO communities alike. It's incredibly difficult to wrap your mind around, let alone connect the dots to. And it's certainly hard to learn the Majestic 12 story and not think, on more than one occasion, someone has to be lying. Who that is has been up for debate for nearly 75 years. Next time, we'll dive into some of the theories surrounding Majestic 12 and the covert relationships behind the papers that the public didn't know about. Like conspiracy theory number one, that the MJ-12 documents were completely fake and the organization never existed. And conspiracy theory number two, that Bill Moore and Richard Doty faked the documents and released them to encourage Roswell witnesses to come forward. And finally, conspiracy theory number three, that the MJ-12 papers were part of a misinformation campaign ordered by the U.S. government. In the end, it's possible that the story of the Majestic 12 is just that, fiction. But it's also just as possible that the story, or at least parts of it, are true. And if even one sentence in those documents can be proven today as a fact, then the world as we know it could change forever. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on this topic, we found the books Top Secret Magic by Stanton Friedman and Dreamland by Phil Patton particularly helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Caroline Burke, edited by Mallory Cara and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Anya Barely, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime 
the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free, only on Spotify.